Hi, welcome to What's Your Point on WPKN Radio. I am Garnet Anchor. My thought for today is from the King James Version of the Bible, from the book of Uzziah, Uzziah chapter 8, verse 7. And I'm just paraphrasing here. Those who sow the wind shall reap the whirlwind. My guest on the show today is the Distinguished University Chair, Founding Director of the New Racial Justice Initiative and Professor of History at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Dr. Yohuru Williams. Hello, Professor Williams. How are you today? I'm good, Gordon. How about yourself? I'm fine. Thank you so much. Glad you're able to do it. And um, as always, thank you so much. And uh, all the best for 2021 all the best for you too you know after that remarkable year we had last year i know a lot of people were looking forward to the changes the calendar um with the coronavirus and uh the struggles over racial justice so on and so forth so yeah absolutely let's hope this is a better year than last year so uh the covid19 seems to be getting worse in the united states how has it affected you and life at the University of St. Thomas? Um, it's been uh, interesting, primarily because, like most universities, uh, we are dealing with how to um, have students be both in person and then also trying to deal with, um, you know, the, the reality that the uh, nation is dealing with, that we're dealing with this deadly virus. And um, there's always the chance that when you're bringing people together in close space, there can be transmission. So. And then, you know, dealing with the fallout from being online, which is difficult, and, and navigating the challenges that come with migrating from a physical space to a virtual space. And then here in Minnesota, um, you know, being neighbored with Wisconsin, where there is a pitched battle between uh, the governor and many citizens of the state of Wisconsin who don't believe, you know, kind of science deniers, don't believe in the um, efficacy of some of the social distancing and other things, and so there's real concern that that puts Minnesotans at risk. So we've, we've been kind of navigating all of those things here. And uh, so are students totally uh, virtual at home doing work? Yes, they are. And um, so how about you oh, in terms... We're, we're hybrid, I should say. So we've got students are taking a mix of online classes and some in-person classes. Okay. So, uh, how has it affected you, the, 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 the new strains coming up, that kind of thing? Um, you know, fortunately, knock on wood, I've been safe, and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, but, you know, um, I'm worried, like everyone else, because now that we're looking at these new strains, uh, clearly, it's an easy um Okay, sounds good. And uh, when I first uh, thought of calling you just to uh, speak on the legacy of Dr. King, but I had to switch gears and say, okay, let's speak of Dr. King later on during the show. But first, speak on the January 6th, I would say, attempted coup at the Capitol uh -huh. building here in the United States in Washington, D.C. What are your thoughts on the entire thing? So 
serious occurrence, um, singular in our history, and uh, something that I, you know, you hope people would be looking at and lamenting along with the death that we're associating with COVID-19, we almost witnessed the lynching of democracy. So we have a situation where 122 members of the United States House of Representatives and uh, 13 members of the United States Senate are at one point talking about the election was fraudulent. So what do you make of these people? Do you think these people should be able to stay in those respective seats, seeing that they are party to this big lie that the election was stolen? I, you know what I think, Garnett, and you and I have talked about this in the past, I think what this represents is what I like to call a there goes my everything moment with regard to a certain population, a certain segment of the um, American population. For the last four years, we've heard people describe the Trump presidency as being one that's been aligned with white supremacy and anti-immigration and um, certainly uh, opposed to Black Lives Matter and any um, articulation of concerns on the part of the African American community. They've also been attacked with science deniers, and we saw that in the dismal, impotent response to COVID-19, and individuals who have a kind of a reckless disregard for uh, democratic practice and calling into question, um, you know, anything where they're not the winner. So you, you put all of that in the context of what happened on January 6th, and suddenly what this becomes is an expression of a large number of people acting out of their own self-interest to try to stall the transfer of power here in the country because they had something significant to lose. Whether that something significant was a loss of status uh, by virtue of uh, the conversations around racial justice, whether it was a loss of, of a feeling of a loss of freedom or autonomy, or autonomy because the government is asking people to do things like uh, wear masks in order to protect against COVID-19, whether it was concern over the extension of, and, and we saw the president in September um, actually mandate an end to all racial sensitivity training, so whether it was an effort to forestall, you know, effort to create understanding on issues of racial justice, at the end of the day, those people who showed up at the Capitol and, and maybe hundreds of thousands or more who didn't, but who supported them in spirit, believe that the nation has been stolen from them. It's not just the election. Um, and there's a great book by Jason Sokol entitled, There Goes My Everything, White Southerners in the Age of Civil Rights, 1945 to 1975. And Sokol's thesis is very simple. White Americans, Southern whites, went to bed in should be done to those members they, they, they kept they keep talking about uh, a few members in the Senate but I think it was 13 senators because if these people are supposed to be law makers and they happen to be law breakers uh, uh, are they in the correct place in the Senate and the House to be making laws when they're lawbreakers? No, they shouldn't 
I mean, this is, you know, um, this is part of the problem. Uh, these individuals like Hawley and Cruz should be held accountable for their actions in encouraging the violence and chaos that we saw on January 6th. The idea that somehow these individuals would be able to continue to hold their feet is repugnant. At the same time, that's why there's this push to impeach, even though he's out of office, Donald Trump. To prevent him, you know, the Republicans are saying, oh, it's moot, it's moot, he's not in office anymore. But he could run again. Anyone who's waged war against the United States government, the foundations of democracy, what Nancy Pelosi called the temple of democracy, should never be allowed uh, not only to serve uh, in, in the House or the Senate or any elective office, but actually should be looking at um, uh, even stronger uh, uh, rebuke, uh, including prison time. And so for me, as I look at some of the people who are parading around Washington today who are complicit in what we saw on January 6th, uh, barring if a service uh, or elective office would not be enough, I think that that warrants um, jail time. So wouldn't you say what took place with this anti-black racist terrorist mob, I call them, would you say that it, they're tantamount to invaders from a foreign nation? So in a situation like this, doesn't matter who you voted for, everybody of goodwill should be standing up and say, this is wrong. People in the Senate and the House, the former president, must be held accountable. I, I think if you are a proponent of dealing with systemic racism in America and you want to make the case that ultimately the nation, if you want people to feel like the, the nation is taking that seriously, then you have to take a stronger stand against these individuals because it is without question um, in the minds of many, and I think you can make the argument, again, based on the symbols that we saw. Look, Garnett, you and I both know this. When you march on the Capitol and you're carrying the Confederate flag, what does that represent? That represents 1861. That represents 11 states of the Confederacy that fled the Union. And when they did that, um, they, you know, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, gave a speech in March of 1861 where he said, the cornerstone of the Confederacy, its foundations rest on the belief that the Negro never was or never was intended to be equal with the white man. Now, when you're bearing that symbol, and then you say later on, oh, this isn't about white supremacy, and this isn't about, uh, you know, anti-black racism, I'm sorry, your symbol says otherwise, because that's what Alexander Stevens and Jefferson Davis and the other leaders of the Confederacy were defining that government on, those foundations. Secondly, when you have the symbol of the noose, the symbol of racial terror, there is, even though... Um, we associate nooses with lynching, and even though hanging was less common than other forms of torture inflicted on black bodies um, in the period when this nation experienced double-digit lynchings between 1880 and 1930, where in some cases, in some states, you had hundreds of lynchings a year, um, let's be clear that, uh, sorry, the states of the, uh, of the old Confederacy where you had hundreds a year, let's be clear that if you're, if you're putting a noose up, what you are is sharing a symbol of anti-black racist terror. Both of them tied to, both in the case of the folks saying the news, the birth of the, I'm sorry, the, the um, Confederate flag of the news, both invoke the, the memory and the history and the legacy of the Ku Klux Klan founded in Pulaski, Tennessee in 1866. So yes, January 6th was absolutely an expression of anti-black racism. It falls in line with what we saw in Charlottesville. It falls in line with the backlash against the removal of Confederate uh, flags and the backlash against Black Lives Matter and the backlash against kneeling. Because ultimately at the core, um, the people who are making the arguments against this are actually all about maintaining white supremacy. So uh, do you think the, the, the silencing of the former president taking away his Twitter, do you think that's maybe a little bit too late? I actually do think it's too late. I, you know, and a little too little too late, and it, it doesn't probably doesn't, in my mind, send a strong enough message to dissuade this type of activity in the future. You know, as we speak, the FBI um, issued uh, this morning or yesterday morning a warning about how the Capitol attack is actually emboldened 
um, extremist groups in the United States, and they're warning against potential other um, efforts and attempts at this type of terror. We can't view January 6th in a bubble. Remember, a couple of months ago, the governor of Michigan was threatened. There was a plot to kidnap the governor by these white extremist groups. So um, the punishment to me doesn't fit the crime at this point. And if, if you're actually talking about driving out the behavior, then the only way to do that is to, to aggressively go after the perpetrators. In the aftermath of the Civil War, there was a representative named Richard Dana. And Richard Dana gave a speech in which he you know, basically laid out the case for why you, you couldn't do what Lincoln was proposing, which was to have charity toward all and malice toward none. And what Richard Dana said is there's such thing as the grasp of war. And he put it in very stark terms that any school child could understand who's ever been in a scrum on a playground or gotten into a fight. What Dana said is, when you have gone toe-to-toe with an enemy or an opponent, and you have vanquished that foe, and you have put them down, before you extend your hand to them in friendship, you should make sure that they understand, before you let them up, that they are the loser, and that, um, you know, you incapacitate them and communicate to them in whatever way necessary, that they can never do this again or they'll face the same or worse consequences. I love talking about Richard Dana in this context because we all know what happened in the aftermath of the Civil War Reconstruction. Lincoln's way with um, malice toward um, none and charity toward all didn't quite win, but by 1877, Reconstruction has ended on the altar of presidential politics and creating unity. Same thing in the aftermath of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 1960s. You got the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and then shortly thereafter, uh, people assume that everything's done and the Democrats and Republicans come back together, and then you get years and years of neglect, um, benign neglect and issues of civil rights. In our contemporary moment, I think what you heard African American leaders saying in the aftermath of the election, before January 6th, Darnett. You know, when Biden won and he came out in his uh, acceptance speech and said, we're going to work toward unity, there were a whole bunch of black folks that, oh, no, not again. Because our concern in that moment was, we know how this story ends when we work diligently to help um, deliver an election and you come out talking about making peace with those people who would have, back to Richard Dana, destroyed us if given the opportunity. In fact, we spent four years of watching them do that in communities of color. And it's not until January 6th and what we saw on January 6th that it seems that the, the rest of the country, progressives and liberals, caught up in understanding what black leaders were saying in the aftermath of Biden's election, which was, this ain't over. And it isn't over until you deal with Trumpism, which at its core is just the rebirth of white supremacy and this strain in American history which is sought to isolate and dominate people of color um, and to relegate them to second-class citizenship solely based on their race. I am speaking with the distinguished university chair, professor of history, and the founding director of the new Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Dr. Uhuru Williams. The show is What's Your Point? I am Garnet Ankle. So it's, it's a shame, though, to see 25,000 troops at the Capitol as if it's a garrison. And then the United States goes around the world and tell people how to run country and how to deal with democracy. How do we regain as a country that, that, that statute to tell people, okay, you need to be democratic when this country is not? Well, I mean, that's the problem. When we think about the, um, the, the poem that Amanda Gorman delivered, right? Yes. She is the descendant of slaves and the child of a single mother. The reality is that um, race is the third rail in American politics. The race is tied to poverty and race is inextricably um, connected to so much of what is wrong with our Republican form of government. So in order to truly restore democracy, you have to deal, well, and some would argue, before you even claim that you have a democracy, you have to deal with the issue of racial injustice and all of its manifestations. 
Uh, it's not just dealing with what's happening at the polls with felony disfranchisement and the changing of polling places and the 2013 gutting of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, it's not just that. You know, those are important things. But it's deeper than that because a people cannot participate in the full civic and economic life of the republic unless they are fully functioning members and recognized as such by their government. So, you know, for me, the conversation about unity and restoring democracy are both premature until you basically engage in what I think needs to be a third reconstruction. So the first reconstruction we had after the Civil War, and it failed. The second reconstruction came during the Civil Rights Movement in the 1950s and 1960s, and it was challenged. This reconstruction, you've got to have political leaders with the political will and fortitude to stick this out and to ensure that at the end of the day, they understand this isn't just dealing with America's Negro problem, black problem, race problem. This is about dealing with an issue fundamental to American democracy itself. So are you saying that the talk from President Biden about unity and to unite the nation, you should just run through his agenda and uh, and then you can deal with talking about unity afterwards? Is it? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I believe that what he needs to do is learn from, you know, your model in this case can't be Barack Obama in 2008 and I'm going to reach across the aisle. Um, your model in this case has to be, um, you know, Lyndon Baines Johnson, where you have the bully pulpit and, you know, or, or SDR, and you're going to ram through your program because you're going to take advantage of the advantage that you have. So, yes, I, I you know, I firmly believe that in this moment, um, the Biden administration should be, you know, thinking about this in the context of, um, you know, not worried about the other side and, and, and accommodating the other side, but ensuring that um, the, this will never happen again by punishing those responsible for what happened. And, uh, McConnell was so bold. He's in a minority and wanted to, to be talking about power sharing. He's, oh, yeah. he's so bold. He wants to share power when he's, he's in a minority. It's, well, and and that, that'll be one of those things that if they let, if, if the Biden administration let them get away with that, and that's, this is, herein lies the problem. Because if you, to your point, if you play this game and you allow them to, you know, dictate as they're apt to do and want to do and do very effectively what this is going to look like uh, going forward, then, yeah, you're, we're in trouble. And this is what the Republicans have done very effectively um, throughout history, and it's what they did under Obama. And, you know, that's part and parcel of the, of the problem here is that the language that, that comes from the Democrats is always around um, reconciliation and unity and reaching across the aisle. And this may not be a moment for that. I mean, that's just the reality is that, you know, in January, you know, I'm saying that in the shadow of January 6th. The January 6th is a game changer. And that's a, you, you have to reset at that point. You can't um, say it's business as usual and you can't claim that you are, you know, appealing to some higher authority. Um, in, in those, you know, under those um, circumstances or, or moral authority when these people literally try to lynch democracy. They try to destroy the very foundations of government. You know, Brian, the other night I was on PBS Extra and I shared with uh, people in attendance that the closest parallel we have to January 6th in our history is what happened in Little Rock in 1957 when... Governor Orfield was sent in the National Guard to keep nine black children from um, integrating Central High. Indeed. And President Eisenhower, the very next day, took those same troops and, and called them into service of the U.S. government and sent them back the very next day to ensure that those students could get into Central High. He gave his speech to the nation that night where he said, Arkansas is embarrassing um, itself in the eyes of the nation and it's embarrassing the nation in the eyes of the world. And he said, among other things, we fought that war, the civil war, and the South was lost. 
you know, states' rights argument is lost. There's one federal government supreme. If the president doesn't enforce the law, it's anarchy. And, um, you know, the president has to do everything by his means to ensure the function of law, even if he disagrees with the, the rulings of a court. Um, when you think about how Eisenhower behaved in that moment and how Trump behaved on January 6th, it's a study in contrast. But more importantly, Eisenhower was also saying um, in that moment that he as president couldn't sit idly by and watch what happened in Little Rock and simply be content um, to let that pass in, in the role of the chief executive. Two years later, Thurgood uh, Marshall commented on everything that happened at Central High. Thurgood Marshall said, look, the problem that I have with the way things played out in Arkansas and other places is not with what happens to the black kids. Because the black students, they understand this. He said, and I'm quoting him, they've been struggling with democracy long enough. He said, I worry for the white kids because education, I'm paraphrasing him here, is not the teaching of the three R's. It's not about reading, writing, arithmetic. It's about citizenship. And he said, I don't know of any more horrible destruction of the principle of citizenship than to tell those white people who decide to go home or, or riot rather than go to school with black people, come back, all is forgiven, you win. Because even if you, um, they ultimately didn't win and those nine children got to integrate Central High, in allowing them to act out in the way they did, what you did was encourage them to believe that that was right, that it was justifiable, that was acceptable, that there would be no consequences for that behavior. And when we're looking at that in the context of peaceful protests by Black Lives Matter activists this past summer, which was greeted with um, repression and, and police violence, there's no way in the world that we shouldn't expect the same uh, modicum of justice for, uh, or for these people as for the injustice that was visited on those peaceful protesters. And that's, that's the challenge. So remind the listening audience who Thurgood Marshall was. For the um, NAACP, who argued the case of Brown versus Board of Education, which resulted um, in the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown, which ordered the immediate desegregation or the desegregation of public schools in the United States with all deliberate speed. Of course, that dictate was not carried out due to the violence and political chicanery we saw in many states across the Union at that time, including the state of Virginia, which closed schools rather than see them reopened on an integrated basis, including Little Rock, where there was the mob violence to prevent the Little Rock Nine from, from attending school. And Marshall was commenting all, on all of that, saying, this is the lesson that you'll communicate to the next generation, that the way they get what they want is the mob. Is the right. and, and as I watched on January 6th, that's what was percolating in my mind, was the words of Circle Marshall from 1958, and kind of recognizing what he said in that moment. So the Biden administration has an opportunity to right that this by, um, you know, literally just making sure they do the right thing and punish these people so the next generation, and looking back on this, won't be able to, um, you know, just kind of walk away and say, well, if we do this, there won't be any consequences. They've got to send the message that um, you don't get to assault what Pelosi called the temple of democracy and, and walk away from it. And uh, Thurgood Marshall went on to become an, an associate justice in the United States Supreme Court. I, I guess he was the first black man to have gone onto the Supreme Court? He was the first African-American to um, serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. He's educated at Howard University, which is interesting because Kamala Harris also is a Howard graduate. Uh, Thurgood Marshall um studied under Charles Hamilton Houston at, at Howard Law School and was part of the NAACP team that was the architect of a series of cases that ultimately undermined the U.S. Supreme Court um, precedent established of separate but equal in Plessy versus Ferguson from 1896. So he's a luminary, not just in American um, you know, legal history in terms of having argued that case and gone on to be um, the first African-American Supreme Court justice, but in African-American history, um, He's, you know, luminary because his life is a testament to the, the very struggle. You know, when we talk about Thurgood Marshall, for example, let's just kind of put him in the broader context here. He uh, wanted to go to University, you know, of, of Maryland Law School, but back then, you know, they, they forced African-Americans, you know, the, the state of Maryland had a law that 
black, you couldn't go to law school in Maryland, but you can go anywhere else in, you know, in the country and they pay for it. And Marshall eventually took the case of a young man named Donald Murray in a case called Murray versus Maryland. And he argued that that was inherently unequal because what Maryland was doing by virtue of that law, although some people were like, well, that's a, that's a good deal. They'll pay for you to go anywhere else. But Marshall said, look, the problem there is that if they go anywhere else, at the end of the day, if they want to practice law in Maryland, they have to be able to pass the Maryland bar. Indeed. So by forcing them to go elsewhere, there was no way they would have access to the same law library, the same resources, the same contact. Even if they were ultimately successful in passing the bar, they'd be entering a profession in the state where they had no professional contact, um, contact no bona fides, so on and so forth. So Marshall recognized that, along with Charles Hamilton Houston and that team of attorneys, and he was a brilliant legal mind, and, you know, he was able to bring that to the court. So, you know, but, but back to this conversation about democracy and how January 6th impacts this, that's what um, those people at Little Rock were attempting to do in denying those African-American students access to schools to prevent them from getting an education. In the same way, as I think about January 6th and the shadow of January 6th, what were those people saying? You stole our election. We don't want Raphael Warnock from uh, sitting in a Senate seat in Georgia. We don't want Joe Biden, an uh, African-American vice president. We want, you know, Mike Pence and Donald Trump. And, and that's why so many people are making the case that this in and of itself um, is very much tied to white supremacy. But do you think they wanted Mike Pence? They were saying, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. So not quite sure that they wanted him. Um, I think they really wanted him, but they definitely, you know, it's interesting because you're right. Um, I, they were saying hang Mike Pence because they believed that Mike Pence was going to go along with the other. They were calling him a traitor. Yes. And that's even more dangerous if they're, you know, the, the, the other piece of this that we haven't talked about is Trump's demagoguery. Indeed. At the end of the day, this is bigger than, you know, even... The, the betrayal of the Republican Party, this is people's alliance and, and uh, faith in, in a would-be dictator. And that's terrifying in the United States. Indeed. Uh, you're in touch with uh, WPKN Radio. The show is What's Your Point? I am speaking with the Distinguished University Chair, Professor of History, and founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Dr. Yohoro Williams. I am Garnet Ankle. And uh, at the time, I think it was the day after, possibly the same day, January 6th, uh, the president-elect at the time, Joe Biden, came out and said, if it was Black Lives, Black Lives Matter group who went up there just to protest, they would have possibly been manhandled. But these people were treated with kid gloves, uh, these white people, because of their race. Uh, are you in agreement with that statement? I think they would have been executed. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm obviously overstating the case here, but by that I mean people would have been calling for them to be thrown underneath the jail or, you know, publicly hanged um, or disciplined to the most, the, the severest extent of the law. And, you know, I don't say that as a matter of hyperbole. I say that because think about the way that people talked about Black Lives Matter activists. We're still having, in many states, laws coming on the books preventing the picketing of um, the homes of elected officials. Um, and, and, you know, all of these efforts to ensure that if their protest breaks out again, they can arrest peaceful protesters and harass peaceful protesters. And yet we literally watch um, you know, protesters hugging and taking pictures with White House police officers. <laughs> and Biden was absolutely right to say what he said in the aftermath of that, because it's true. If the perpetrators of that assault on the Capitol had been non-white, we would be having a very different conversation right now. So that that's another, what you call, white privilege. So, yes. so the, the racist president was somewhere in the White House watching it and was gleeful while watching, and um, his own Republican um, Congress people were calling him, and he was so gleeful, was, was enjoying what was taking place, an insurrection, an attempted coup. And wh what do you make of anybody who behaves like that, especially the president of a country? Well, I, I think it's fair to say he was never fit for office to begin with. And so, and that was the argument that was made consistently uh, uh, about, 
you know, him and his fitness for office, his fitness for duty, and watching his reaction in the aftermath of the, you know, because he encouraged that. I mean, we we're also thinking about the speech that he gave and Rudy Giuliani gave that, that um, uh, uh, you know, his lieutenant gave on that day. He was gleeful because, you know, he got what he wanted and he thought that they actually were going to do his bidding in, um, you know, disrupting Congress and, and uh, forestalling the vote. And uh, his vice president was pinned down along with his wife and child and he didn't call him to find out what was going on. It took nearly a week before they spoke. That is what, I mean, it's, it's crazy. He's a demagogue. I mean, this is, you know, people who don't believe that he should be impeached are missing the point because the, the, the problem here is that uh, he has the chance to run for office again. There, there are precedents in our history of people who serve two non-consecutive terms as president. And, you know, you want to make sure this this human being can get nowhere near the executive office of the president again. Indeed. So what do you think is, is the future of the Republican Party, the grand old party, the party of Lincoln? We have now become a, a racist group in general. That's how I'm seeing it. What are your thoughts? Well, fortunately, historically, um, the allegiances of the party split and have changed and evolved. So it's not really the, the same party of Lincoln. It's the Republican Party, but it's not the same DNA. Um, but to your larger point, the Republican Party has been through um, a couple of these moments in the past. We saw this with the Tea Party and kind of been in a position to reinvent itself. So the question now is what will our reinvention look like? I thought for sure the Tea Party was the death of the Republican Party, and yet what it did was open up the door for extremism in the Republican Party where you get um, a candidate like Donald Trump who, you know, quite frankly, on the campaign trail, demonstrated his unfitness for office and people still voted for him in record numbers. So, um, you know, I think the party will survive um, what, because, you know, um, I, I'm not sure that the people who supported the base recognize the mortal danger that leaders like Hawley and Cruz and Trump put the nation in by virtue of their ignorance and, and their actions. And that's sad. I mean, that, that's a failure of democracy, but it's also a question of education. And then you have QAnon member or members in the House of Representatives, and, you know, it's, 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 it seems as if we're living in some dreadful times. We have people who support some serious conspiracies are in the House of Representatives making laws. Patriotism is the last refuge of a scoundrel. Uh, let's uh, shift gears a bit and let's talk a little about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who on the 18th of this month, was uh, we had celebrated this, the 35th year since we started celebrating his day as a holiday. And of course, he was born the the 15th of January 1929. It would have been 92 this year. And um, 
what do you think of what is his legacy? What is what is the legacy of King? The senators and the and the, the Congress people in the United States Congress were latching onto Dr. King's speech and to Dr. King recently talking about oh Dr. King was a great man and and this just hypocrisy because they're not living what Dr. King taught, taught us. They're not doing anything where Dr. King is concerned. And were Dr. King alive today, they're the same ones who be criticizing him because he would be talking against their racist rhetoric on their racist behaviors. Your, your thoughts? I couldn't agree more. And I think that's, again, when you reduce them to a sound by anybody can, you know, raise up those those quotes and claim that they support that. But the question is, what did you do all year? Where were you when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis? Where did you stand on uh, the investigation into Breonna Taylor's killing in Kentucky? These are issues. Dr. King would have been on the front lines. In fact, Two of Dr. King's lieutenants died last year, Kiki Vivian and John Lewis. Indeed. Um, and both of those individuals remained on the front lines of battle for social justice, racial justice in the United States. John Lewis's final letter to the American people 
which is um, published in the New York Times the day after his death, Indeed. all is, is written to Black Lives Matter activists telling them that uh, to keep doing what they were doing is only they could redeem the soul of America. Powerful. And, so, and they... Sitting in the United States Senate, there's a bill sitting there from the last Congress. They claim they love King so much, and Lewis was one of King's lieutenant or lieutenants, and they let that bill die. And then they're coming talking about how great King was. They were a set of jokers. That's it. They are. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it any more eloquent uh, than you, Carnet. That is exactly what they are. So. So it is a dream. That dream is just partly remains a dream, or what? What is it? What do we do? What, where do we go from here, as a people? Right, that was just that was King's final book, and he, I think, was struggling with that, but also laid out a blueprint. My favorite piece by Dr. King is actually published the year after his death, in 1969, and it's a really powerful article where Dr. King talked about um, the, the road ahead. And he, I just wrote a piece on this in the Progressive um, uh, Magazine, um, or an uh, 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 op-ed called Martin Luther King's Jr. for us, message for us in this moment. And, you know, what King says in that final piece, which is really, really powerful, is that the United States has to deal with its triple threats of militarism, materialism, um, and uh, uh, economic justice. And until it did that, we would not be in a position ultimately to do the work necessary to ensure um, equality. In fact, what King wrote was, black Americans have not life, have not liberty, nor the privilege of pursuing happiness. But he also added millions of poor white Americans are on economic bonds that is scarcely less oppressive. He, of course, was setting up for the poor people campaign, but what King understood and what we're dealing with today is that those poor whites that are in that position don't recognize that their interests are better served and aligned with poor communities of color. They're believing the lie of the Hawleys and the Trumps um, that somehow white supremacy um, and, and being superior to black people is what gives them privilege and a lot. And they support that by virtue of what we saw on January 6th. So when I think about that in the larger context of Dr. King and pulling this all together, you know, my argument is that you can quote Dr. King all day, but you also have to ask yourself the hard question that Dr. King often asks himself, which is that the way we judge people is not where they are in times of comfort, but where they are in times of turmoil. And I didn't see any of those people um, quoting Dr. King in any place where we were talking about social justice last year in any meaningful dialogue, action, or otherwise to advance the cause of racial justice. So I'm really not interested in them quoting Dr. King on his birthday. Indeed. And uh, he was um, dealing with the Poor People's Campaign. Where Was it Memphis, Tennessee he went to uh, to deal with some sanitation workers in that fateful April 68 when he was assassinated was he dealing with and talking on behalf of sanitation workers was that how he yeah, yeah okay and, 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 and you know he's there because he's trying to make the case that civil rights without economic justice are dead rights that you can't you know famously what good is it to have the right to eat in a restaurant if you can't afford anything on the menu civil rights without economic justice are dead rights what good is it to have a job as a sanitation worker but then be forced to work under conditions which ultimately deprive you of your ability to take care of your family and have a decent you know, quality of life or to be in jeopardy um, of, of uh, being injured as many of those uh, sanitation workers were without the benefit of benefits. Uh, so, yeah, King, King was ahead of his time in a lot of ways and, and they, they clawed him in a way that has become fashionable to do since the designation of the King holiday is something that always disturbs me because the historical King was far more radical and far more complex and complicated than anything that you hear some of the people who invoked his name um, you know, portrays who Dr. King was. Indeed, and uh, you know, the, the late John McCain, uh, when it was time for him to vote for the King holiday, he, he voted no. He, right. You recall right. that? And he said, um, so many 
so many presidents and so forth came before why can't why should give a, a holiday to him he later apologized though for that because maybe he didn't understand the magnitude of the man but he was around your right. thoughts disturbing um you know not sure where we go but um it's a bit hopeful because uh, a new sheriff is in town and let's see what will happen in the next uh, couple of days couple of weeks and um you know between the the uh the 20th uh, january uh 20 at about midday between then and now it seems as if we've lived about two months already because so much is going on and it seems as if this administration is uh, trying to do something, which, you know, we saw four years of absolutely nothing done on the behalf of black people and people of color. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. So thanks again, uh, Professor. It uh, time ran away so fast. Thanks for doing this uh, on short notice. And uh, we will talk. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Take your better. You too. Thanks. The preceding was a conversation with the distinguished university chair, founding director of the Racial Justice Initiative and a professor of history at the University of St. Thomas, St. Paul, Minnesota, Dr. Yohoro Williams. We discussed the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the 35th year since his birthday was made a federal public holiday and the, the attempted coup at the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021. This has been What's Your Point with Garnet Anchor.